0: Yeah, first of all, uh, I'm I'm really glad to be here and thanks everyone for coming. Thank you for organizing it and a big thanks, Brian, for reading the book and for being here tonight. Uh, I must admit that it feels a bit like a vacation to be in London. Uh, I arrived yesterday from Germany. In Germany, we are on a roller coaster tour uh, uh, for European elections with uh, dm 25 uh, the Democracy in Europe movement and Demokratie in Europa, which is the name of our German party. If you want to know how it looks like, it looks like uh, uh, basically like a punk rock tour. Me and Yanis and other members of our party uh, going from city to city, a few cities a day, uh, traveling by train, speaking on tracks, uh, uh, and this kind of stuff. Uh, why? Uh, uh, well, uh, one, there is a personal reason. The personal reason is that uh, I was living in Germany until 91 as a child of a political refugee uh, from, from Yugoslavia. Uh, so Germany is close to my heart. Uh, and the second reason is more political in the sense that uh, uh, the Democracy in Europe movement was founded, uh, uh, unlike left nationalism and the Lexiteers and Brexiteers and so on, out of the conviction that only a transnational pan-European movement can get us out of the current shit. Uh, uh, Sorry for my French. Uh, uh, So we developed a comprehensive program, uh, which we called uh, the European Green New Deal. Uh, We can talk about it a bit later, uh, which we constructed together with different partners from different countries in Europe. We are running at the moment in Greece, in Germany, uh, with different partners in Poland, France, Denmark, probably some other countries which I can't remember. And uh, why in Germany, besides the personal reason because Germany is the most developed and probably also the most important country of the Eurozone uh, with the biggest historical responsibility uh, uh, for the future of Europe and at the same time uh, I would say the most fertile ground, unlike Britain, I would say, unfortunately, uh, for a green new deal. Uh, according to the latest polls, uh, 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 you know probably you've heard that migration is a big topic, it's a big topic here as well. but according to the latest polls, uh, climate change is at the top of the interests of the German electorate, which is a good news, uh, which gives us a good ground. Uh, but just to finish, uh, whatever will happen out of these elections, whether some of us Uh, will get a seat in the European Parliament. I don't think this is so much important. To be honest, I would rather not get a seat there because I would die out of boredom in the European Parliament, probably. But uh, uh, what is important for us is to change the discourse, to change the narrative, to change something what Antonio Gramsci called the hegemony. And it is a very long fight uh, uh, which which will take place. So this month, even if we are doing 150% of ourselves Giving into the campaign, everyone is sick, everyone is tired, and so on. For us, it is just a very small step in changing the future of Europe. Thank you. Um, I'm going to talk about your book, or ask you about Thanks. your book.
1: The book is called Poetry from from the Future, and the subtitle is Why a Global Liberation Movement Is Our Civilization's Last Chance. So, can I start by asking you what was the question? that you were trying to answer in the book? What was the question you were asking yourself about this?
0: Wow. <laughs> so we're already starting with the difficult questions. Mm-hmm. They're not going to get any easier, Shichar. <laughs>
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> Luckily, I'm in the position of asking them rather than answering them. Well, I will ask you some questions as well. <laughs> okay. But let, let me try, try to answer. I mean, uh, uh, well, what I, I started, as you know, from a quote by Karl Marx from his book 18th Brumaire. Uh, which I find really important and relevant today. Uh, and the quote says uh, that uh, uh, the social revolution cannot be inspired by the past, but it has to draw its poetry from the future. Uh, what I tried to a- the question I tried to answer is to uh, examine, explore, in which way we can, uh, let's say, uh, be ins- take the good things out of the past, which in this case is the history of the island of Wyss, Uh, and uh, uh, the history of the Yugoslav partisan movement, uh, which was one of the most radical anti-fascist movements in Europe. Uh, What parts of that we can take into the present to construct a better future, but at the same time, in which way we can build a better future without being hostages of the past? And this is the question I I tried to answer. Whether I did it, I don't know. You can tell me.
1: Well, yes, you did it in some respects. I think so. It's a very provocative book. Um, But it leads me to a number of questions. You you keep using a phrase that I wrote down, hope without optimism. Um, Can you talk about that a little bit, what that means in this context?
0: This this is a phrase which I borrowed from Terry Eagleton. Mm -hmm. Uh, He actually gave uh, uh, a full... uh, uh, how do you call that in English, a full circle? Yeah, not one lecture, but more lectures. A series of lectures uh, about hope without optimism. Mm -hmm. Uh, And uh, I developed it a bit further in the sense that what what we can see today is either on the one hand uh, something what Walter Benjamin called uh, the melancholy of the left, Mm -hmm. Uh, like this kind of passivism, even a sort of demand that things cannot get better, mm-hmm. and basically what the left is doing is constantly criticizing and presenting a bleak, uh, a very dark future. And on the other hand, you have this kind of utopianism, which mainly comes from Silicon Valley, all these Jeff Bezos, Elon Musk, and guys uh, who are convincing us that by continuing this way of life, the capitalist way of life, Uh, uh, we will uh, reach a bright future. I think we are already living in a very dystopian uh, Mm. uh, present, uh, so there is no reason for optimism, uh, but we need hope. And what I try to do with the book is to show hope, uh, uh, but without optimism, because I think optimism is very often very naive. Uh, uh, But we need hope because the left uh, uh, is usually not giving so much hope.
1: Yeah. Well, one of the things that Happens a lot in the book. One of the things I like is you're travelling around to visit communes and places where people are experimenting with alternative ways of living and being and working together and sharing things, um, which is news we don't hear about very much. It's kind of the good news, but there's no currency in good news. You know, nobody makes much money out of good news, so we don't hear about it. And we don't see it, but. How much of that is there actually going on? Is this really a worldwide movement? I mean, I remember about 20 years ago, I guess now, or 15, Paul Hawken published a book whose title I've now forgotten. Um, And it started out because he wanted to know how many environmental movements there were in California where he lived. He ended up finding out that there were 2 million NGOs in America. That's two million groups of people from mm-hmm. you know, as, many, as few as three people deciding that they want to make the local lake cleaner or something to big organizations like Greenpeace and Friends of the Earth. So, you know, in fact, just about half of America was in some NGO or other. So there's, there's a huge amount of stuff going on among people to try to create another future, but we don't hear much about it. Now, in your experience of traveling around, did you sort of cherry-pick the examples that you gave, or or did you find that there was lots of that going on?
0: Well, I would say that there are many things going on uh, which are not being presented in the mainstream media. Like, one chapter of the book is mainly about these uh, local experiences of struggles, uh, cooperatives rising in Catalonia, At the time when I was there, uh, there were more than 600 different cooperatives. Mm -hmm. Uh, Don't get me wrong, I don't think that micro-local activism is the answer to our global problems, but I think it's necessary also to experiment on the local level. Uh, uh, Then at the same time, you know, when I was traveling to Greece already at the times of the OHI referendum, uh, uh, I, I saw that similar movements were rising there without an influence of the movements in Spain like the so-called potato movement uh, uh, in Greece, which started because the prices of potato were rising, uh, 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 were falling down because of our production. Uh, uh, so they had, the potato producers had to avoid the middlemen at the supermarkets, and they created, uh, let's say, a, a system or a digital system in which way the goods could reach uh, the, the, the consumers directly without supermarkets and middlemen. And then I saw something similar happening in Spain. Uh, and something similar in France with Tarnak 9. Uh, uh, <clears throat> so there are all these sorts of experiences, uh, but one of the main points of the book is uh, uh, how to interconnect them, yeah. how to how to not only scale them up, but in which way can they be more effective, mm-hmm. and also at the same time I'm critical of them because I don't believe that there is something outside of capitalism. You know, this naive leftist uh, uh, game that, you know, we will build a commune, a cooperative, uh, live on a tree, And uh, 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 we will not drink Coca-Cola, not use computers, and that means we are revolutionaries. I'm very critical of that as well. Mm -hmm. I think we have to actually use capitalism against capitalism itself. Mm -hmm. I don't know whether you would agree with that, because you are working... Let me pose a question. (laughs) I'm working in the capitalist industry. (laughs) Yes. So how do you... do, Do you think that... Let me now turn the... Uh, do you think that, uh, because, yes, you're working in the music industry, mm-hmm. which is a capitalist industry, yeah. uh, 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 do you think that it's possible, from your own experience, to subvert it, to, 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 to use it really against itself? Well, interestingly, it has kind of subverted itself
1: recently in a, in a number of different ways. For instance, by removing the kind of bottleneck that used to exist because of the record companies. You know, if you want to make an album 25 years ago, You had to go through a record company, and there was no other choice. So you were placed into a very sort of competitive capitalist field in that way. And now you don't, of course, have to do that. There are lots of other ways of releasing things, which, of course, very quickly get co-opted as part of the capitalist system. So Spotify now... um, which was posed as a kind of revolution in the first place, is, is not really that revolutionary. It's another way of selling music. But then, you know, the other day I was on the phone with Peter Gabriel to some people who want to start a new streaming system that will pay the artists much more money and have some free money for social benefits as well. So, you know, it's, it's evolving all the time. Um, in fact, I want to ask you a question um, that relates to this. You, you say in your book that there's what tends to happen in these new forms of social organization is that there's a lot of horizontal um, information and connection, but very little vertical connection. Can you explain that a little bit? We, you were talking about the World Social Forum, the, where... Um, which for many years was a very successful organization for people, grassroots people meeting each other and making connections, but it never really gelled into a global, powerful organization.
0: And you have a theory as to why that is. Yeah, I think that's a very important question. Uh, uh, Let's first define the terms for for the audience that we don't sound too much, uh, uh, I don't know. So when we say horizontality, it mainly refers to a sort of social organization which, is, uh, uh, which can be named as direct democracy, something what we have seen at Occupy Wall Street, plenums, uh, general assemblies, getting together, deciding together without a kind of hierarchy. Uh, 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 when we say verticality, I know that this word unfortunately uh, uh, first reminds people of a company, Or of Stalinism, (laughs) you know, uh, all the bad things, both of them. Uh, 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 So, but what I'm trying to to show, and it's not only me, it's not my invention. uh, Some on the left uh, who are dealing with social movements, for instance, Antonio Negri or Michael Hart have been writing about it, is to show that we need need more verticality, uh, that we don't have to be afraid of leadership, Uh, When I say verticality or leadership, it doesn't mean that we need a big figure of a leader, but it means that we need an effective uh, way of organizing and decision-making. Because even with uh, 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 DiEM25, you can see, okay, we have around 100,000 members now all across the world, uh, mainly in Europe, but also in other countries, in Japan, in, in U.S., and so on. And every then and now, people approach us, send an email or something saying, uh, you know what, I have a great idea, uh, uh, maybe we should uh, uh, organize a protest. Or maybe we should sign a petition letter for something. And then usually what we do is, we usually just say, just do it. Mm-hmm. Uh, because, uh, uh, you know, people, and I think it's a, it's a consequence of human organization of centuries, uh, that human were, humans were, in a way, uh, um, let's say, forced to function in a way in which they uh, uh, delegate responsibility to a higher level. Uh, uh, I mean, you can see it in bureaucracy, but also in different systems, in the sense that uh, they don't take the responsibility necessarily. uh, And when they have the opportunity to take the responsibility, they will usually uh, uh, delegate it to something what Jacques Lacan calls the big other, the figure of the one who knows better than we, Uh, and I think that's a big problem. So we are trying to change that, and we need more leadership and verticality in the sense of, uh, I see you have a question. Yes. I do
2: absolutely have a question. So at the beginning of your book, you talk about being in a demonstration uh, outside the G8s in Hamburg, and that, that all the demonstrators are kept about a mile away from where the conference is, and you get this sense when you say that, that there is this whole world of protest and demonstration which is all, in a way, completely contained within the capitalist structure, that we're outside it, throwing bricks against it. And so I'm really interested in how you see the way through that. And also, what did they do in Viz back in... What was their method of resistance?
1: Perhaps you, should, perhaps you should tell people, tell a people bit about, Viz, about Viz, the history yeah. of
2: Viz, because it comes. Viz all the is way not the
1: magazine. <laughs> We're not
0: referring to the magazine.
2: But Viz <laughs> would be very proud to be associated with Viz.
0: Yes, they would be. <laughs> yes, yeah, so, so Viz is not a Mamma Mia island. Uh, uh, the very fact that Mamma Mia 2 was filmed at Viz, uh, uh, we can thank to Alexis Tsipras. <laughs> what does that mean? Because uh, Greece, uh, under the government of Alexis Tsipras, they changed some laws. So it's more expensive to do a big Hollywood production in Greece. Uh, so they picked up a Croatian island, uh, uh, which was playing a Greek island. And the locals, and as in good colonial times, were playing Greeks on a Croatian island. Uh, uh, and even at that time, I was at Lees. Uh, you could find signs which were in Greek and so on. It was really as if you were on a Greek island. Except, of course, that you will see Pierce Brosnan on Mellis Strip, on the beach, and so on. Uh, and that was quite quite surreal, uh, because I think it's much closer as uh, uh, Andrew Anthony, uh, who wrote uh, a nice review uh, and we will discuss later about which parts I don't agree, but a nice review for The Observer, where he said it should actually be called a James Bond island. Why? Because there is a figure from Britain uh, who was there at that island in '44, and that figure is called Fitzroy MacLean. Uh, uh, yes, I know that after Later in his career, he was a conservative. Uh, but at that time, uh, Eastern Approaches is a beautiful book where he describes how he parachuted in Bosnia. Uh, and it already sounds like James Bond. You know, he's parachuting, and he made an agreement with the partisans, Yugoslav partisans led by Josip Broz Tito, uh, that they would lit fires. Uh, but the Nazis were not stupid, of course, so they lit fires as well. So Fitzroy Maclean, the prototype of, of James Bond, was... Parachuting in and he saw a lot of fires and he didn't know where he would end up. Imagine the situation in 44, you know, it's pretty dystopian. Half of Europe is occupied, and there is a resistance movement which is killing the biggest number of Nazis. That's basically what Winston Churchill said. And Winston Churchill said to Fitzroy McLean. ...go there and help those who are killing the biggest number of Nazis. Uh, uh, And they ended up, after the Nazis uh, uh, attempted to kill Tito in Drvar... uh, uh, ...they ended up on the only island uh, in the Mediterranean Sea... ...which is today around two and a half hours uh, by ferry from Split... ...from the coast of Croatia. They ended up on the only island which wasn't occupied by the Nazis. Uh, uh, What I'm trying to, 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 to show by talking to local people there who are still alive... Uh, or uh, 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 reading uh, uh, archives, is to show in which, which, which forms of resistance this struggle took, which, which forms uh, 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 took, the, uh, how to say it in English, I'm sorry, my brain is working. Which worked? In, yeah, I'm, w- my brain is working in German and Croatian at the same time, so that's a bit uh, bad. Uh, and, uh, well, there are several lessons, I would say, of that struggle. First lesson is, uh, on the island of Vis. before Tito and Fitzroy McLean came, uh, uh, it was occupied by the fascists. Uh, uh, the way they succeeded to kick out fascists wasn't just the capitulation of Mussolini in September uh, '43, uh, but it was actually local resistance which took various forms. Uh, so let me just give you an example. Uh, when uh, the, 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 the German Luftwaffe was flying over the Croatian islands, uh, which were all then later occupied, at, except these. Uh, they would throw bombs and very often they would miss the target and the bombs would fall into the sea. Uh, so what the local fishermen of komija uh, which is a little fisherman's place on this, would do uh, when the bomb would fall into the sea, uh, they would immediately take a boat, go where the bomb fell, because there would be kilos and kilos of fish uh, because of the bomb. And they would take the fish back, for instance. So this is what I call subversion, you know, constructive subversion, in which way you can use utter despair, utter occupation, uh, in order to fight your way out. That was one example. The other example was when German uh, 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 planes were falling down on the island, or near the island, they would take the tires of the island in order to create this, I don't know how this is called... Yes, of the shoes, which would then end up in the mountains of Yugoslavia for the partisan resistance. So they used everything they could. So this is the first lesson, to be inventive in the social struggle. Something what Extinction Rebellion is doing, I would say, in a very good way. You know, although it's still on the level, it's not on the level of the Yugoslav partisans yet. Let's hope it will be. Uh, but it's very inventive. You need to, you need to use, use subversion. Uh, second, uh, I think, lesson of the struggle of 44 is that... Uh, It's self-management, basically, you know. Self-management is is a word uh, which uh, uh, many people criticize today. I'm also critical of it. It was basically a political-economical system which was developed by the Yugoslav partisans after Tito broke with Stalin in 1948, uh, uh, which was uh, following, I would say, uh, an idea which we have to reinvent uh, in the 21st century as well, uh, which is the following idea, that the surplus value... of the the created value doesn't go back to the capitalists, but it should go back to the working class. Uh, Well, if you ask me, it didn't really function in Yugoslavia, to be honest, but at least they tried to create it. On this, we could have seen that self-management to a certain degree functioned, especially with the big refugee crisis of 44, uh, uh, when most of the people were actually forced to leave the mainland of Croatia, they used V's at one point, they were today, it's around 3,000 people at the island. At that time, it was 30,000. Uh, more than 10,000 were refugees. And then they ended up uh, 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 in Italy and ended up in Sina in Egypt. And in Egypt, uh, uh, they created a self managing refugee camp. So the first day the British came there, you know, the Brits, okay, there was a good role by Churchill, I would say, and especially Fitzroy MacLean, but it was kind of also opportunistic. At the same time, he was smashing the Greek resistance, but he was helping the Yugoslav partisans. We know that. Uh, But at least he made the right decision to support uh, the partisans, although they were supporting the Chetniks. But I will go too much into Yugoslav details. But when the Brits came to the refugee camp of El Shat, uh, Google the name El Shat, in Sinai, in Egypt, uh, the first thing they found out is, day after the refugees arrived, thousands of them, that the refugees are already running a magazine. The refugees are already running, running a theater company, not a company, but a theater, uh, theater community. Uh, they are, uh, uh, you know, uh, developing arts, doing music, playing football. They were managing the society of the refugee camp. So that's the second lesson. It's, re- it's self-management. And the third, which I find very important today, and that's the subtitle of, of the book, Why We Need a Global Liberation Movement. Not only resistance movement, because resistance is more something passive, liberation is more proactive, is that on this tiny island of uh, uh, Wyss, a small group of courageous people were cooperating with other forces throughout Europe. And only by cooperation, and when I say cooperation, it's not just cooperation of a few crazy, radical madmen, it's a cooperation even with the conservatives or liberals. So when just to finish, when there is this famous uh, conversation which I quite like between Fitzroy Maclean and, Mer- uh, and Churchill, uh, which both Churchill and Fitzroy Maclean uh, write about it. Uh, that when, when Fitzroy Maclean returned for a short period to UK during the Second World War to brief Churchill about uh, what is happening there, and he couldn't believe what he saw, uh, uh, then he asked Churchill, "But Winston, do you know these guys are communists?" And Winston said yes. And then he asked, Fitzroy Maclean asked Winston, but what if after the war we are supporting them now? What, after, what if after the war they will establish a communist regime? And you know what Churchill answered? And I think that's a good lesson for the conservative friends around here, if there are any. Uh, uh, he said, Will you live in Yugoslavia? And Fitzroy Maclean said no, although he had a house on Kortula uh, <laughs> later. Uh, and Winston, Churchill said, so what do you care? The most important thing at this time during the war is to build allies and resistance against the Nazis. And I think this is what is, what is missing today because very often in history, you've seen in it, 1919 in Germany with the social democrats uh, killing Rosa Luxemburg and so on, you see that the conservatives, the liberals and so on are very often smashing the radical left instead of cooperating with them. I think that's one big lesson of, of these 44. Mm-hmm. Of course, one... I know that's a very interesting answer, I
1: think. One of the um, significant things, though, is that there was a very easy-to-identify enemy there, and people seem to do much better if they have an easy sense of who the enemy is. I remember years ago, in, in the 80s, I was in Germany, and one week there came out an article in Der Spiegel, or Der Stern, which was a survey of 38 countries, and they asked them just two questions... They asked 10,000 people in each country, so it was a huge survey. They said, are you happy, and do you think your life will be fulfilled? And they rated the countries by the results. The, country that, the two countries that came top were Northern Ireland and South Africa, both of which were undergoing very violent struggles at the time. The country that came bottom of the 38 was West Germany, which was at the time at the pinnacle of its economic success. And I was trying to think then, how could this happen? And I suddenly realized, well, people actually are consolidated by the sense of a simple them and us enemy situation. And, you know, the the discussion that you have in here about what happened in Yugoslavia, all of those people could come together because they all agreed on one thing, one important thing, who the enemy was. But in our situation, how do, we, how do we identify that? It's been very easy, it seems, to misdirect people about that and to tell them that the enemy is immigrants or the EU or any other the Jews or whatever else we want to. But it's, it's been hard to find an enemy that everybody agrees on. What would you say that is? Is, is it possible to identify one?
0: Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's, it's, uh, I can just say capitalism and stop here, but it's a bit more complicated. Uh, I would say uh, the biggest mistake today is that uh, the establishment and also parts of the, of, of the left and liberals are identifying the enemy as right-wing populism. Uh, you know, Victor Orban, uh, 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 Matteo Salvini in Italy, Donald Trump, Bolsonaro in Brazil... Yes, of course. If you ask me, for me, they are the enemies. And sometimes we have to go back to a conservative philosopher lawyer, Carl Schmitt, who says that politics is about friends and enemies. Uh, uh, I'm a person who would never kill a fly because I'm vegetarian and maybe sometimes I would. Uh, so I don't like really speaking about enemies. Mm. But yes, for me, people like Bolsonaro who are shutting down departments of philosophy or cutting the Amazon and so on are enemies of humanity. Uh, uh, Trump as well, Orban as well, Salvini as well. Uh, uh, you know, they are letting refugees to drown in the Mediterranean Sea. And not to mention all the all detention camps for children. Uh, uh, but I, th- I would say the mistake is uh, to think that this trend of right-wing populism is something which fell out of the blue sky. Uh, no, I would say this is basically another part of the same coin and the other part of the coin of one part of the coin is right-wing populism or illiberal democracy, but the other part of the coin is capitalism or so-called liberal democracy. Because I think illiberal democracy comes out of a contradiction inside of liberal democracy itself. And this goes back also to, to Greek philosophy uh, uh, and, uh, you know, the, uh, the Athenian model of democracy, which is still cherished by many people, you know, what do you want? We want to go back to the Athenian model of democracy. They could decide on the squares, blah, blah, blah. But they never, they, they always fail to mention that it was mainly white male people who could uh, uh, decide on the square, while women, slaves, and foreigners couldn't. Decide. So there was already an exclusion inside of Athenian democracy. This is the first point. And second, it was already relying on imperialism. Uh, Athenian democracy wouldn't exist, and you know, all these theaters, architecture, and so on, uh, without uh, uh, foreign, without colonization of other islands. Uh, so you have the same in liberal democracy as well. Uh, uh, which was unable to solve its own contradiction, and as a result, you have the rise of right-wing populism. Mm -hmm. So, to answer your question briefly, I think we need to understand this complex uh, uh, interplay between right-wing populists and capitalism itself. Like, one example, uh, uh, a few days ago, it was revealed that Palantir Technologies, uh, uh, which is a company owned by Peter Thiel, who was one of the First, Silicon Valley dudes who, who gave a lot of money to Trump, unlike Zuckerberg and the others who were, co- and Google, Eric Schmidt and so on, who were uh, 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 hoping that Hillary Clinton would win. Peter Thiel uh, 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 was betting on the, let's say, right horse in that way, uh, uh, the one who would win. And just recently, it was revealed that his company is actually Palantir, working to, re- to, 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 to create a register for the detention camp for children. And this is nothing new. If you look at the the history of the 20th century, you would see that uh, fascism was always cooperating with capitalism. Capitalism was always cooperating with fascism. The role of IBM in creating the register of Jews. Uh, The role of uh, Henry Ford... Uh, uh, and all the cars and trucks and weaponry used in Second World War—that uh, uh, is the problem, I would say. That you know they are not necessarily opposed to fascism. Sometimes they need it. Yeah. I don't know what 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 would you say? How how to define the enemy today? And do you think well, an enemy is a good term for it? I,
1: yes, it's not a good a well chosen yeah. word. I, I I generally don't think in terms of enemies, but I was taking from the wartime context, when there was a distinct sense of the enemy. And, and I think when it's that distinct, it's very easy for people to bury their differences and unify, and which, which is actually why I think the right has always been much more successful in politics than, than the left, because the right can easily identify what their objective is. They can bury all their differences, because the one thing they want is to stay powerful and rich. you can bury a lot of differences under that. Whereas what the left wants is always some vision of the future, and there are lots of visions. So there's a lot of competition among visions. So the left is always splitting and arguing and saying, no, this vision would work better than this one. It's easy to defeat a a group that doesn't have a single voice like that. But I have to say that I think there, there was a period after the war which is in my opinion, mistakenly called the golden age of capitalism, when things changed. I, I think since what we think of when we think of that period is, you know, women's rights, minority rights, better conditions for workers, free education, free health care, all of those things are what come under the umbrella of the golden age of capitalism, as it's now known, All of those things are what socialists have always wanted. So why don't we actually call it the golden age of socialism? It seems to me that's a much better description of what was happening then. And for a little while, until um, the capitalists got their shit together, (laughs) there there was the chance of um, a more just society appearing. At, At the expense of a lot of other societies, I realize, you know, there was Vietnam and there was Africa being exploited and so on. But nonetheless, there there was a difference of opportunity there, which I think disappeared quite suddenly about 40 years ago, 35 to 40 years ago. And suddenly people saw something that they had never seen in their lifetime, which is the prospect of things becoming worse, and things being worse for their children than than they had been for them. And for me, that's the fertile ground that populism comes from Um, when people start getting resentful they know that things are not how they should be but they don't know what the cause of that is because the cause is rather complex the cause is also in a way the dream you know the the American dream is is actually when left unfettered has those results so it's difficult to reconcile that in your mind that the dream is also the the uh, problem so, what, what we're seeing now, I think, is the, um, in the last few years, we're seeing the, rea- the incoherent realization that the dream has disappeared. Um, as you say in your book, it's not that we're waiting for the apocalypse, we're actually living in it now. We're, we're already there. So, now the question is, what do we do? Which is my next question to you. <laughs>
0: Well, to be completely honest, uh, uh, I don't think that an individual knows mm. what we should do. Uh, I think that we can uh, uh, come to the answer to this question only through collective action. Uh, and that all the efforts uh, and all the good results of humanity were a result of collective action, of something what Marx would call the general intellect, you know, of intellects coming together, but also emotions coming together a sort of libidinal economy coming together mm-hmm. and creating a solution. Uh, what I'm trying to show in the book is that the problems we face, as you outlined very, uh, very well, are multilayered. And it's a very complex network of different pl- problems which we are facing, like climate change, but it's not only climate change, it's permafrost, you know, if permafrost melts, Uh, It will be even worse than climate change, it's environmental breakdown, it's right-wing populism, it's technology which is, you know, uh, uh, having as a result Cambridge Analytica or Facebook which is having as a result Brexit or Trump or Bolsonaro and WhatsApp or what you have seen with WhatsApp recently that they were using it uh, 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 as a spyware, so update your WhatsApp or just delete it and use better, better, better better applications. So you can see that it's it's a very complex network of problems which we are facing. And basically, maybe we don't even know what will happen in 10 or 20 years, because if permafrost, uh, 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 you know, starts uh, 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 a kind of uh, 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 development, then it will have an influence on something else. There is a book which I really like, it's called uh, The Year Without Summer, uh, about 1816. Uh, uh, which is kind of no one knows about it. I find, I find it very interesting. It's about a volcano in, in the, You know that, yeah. Yeah, well, yeah. The sky went black. Yes. Yeah. And yes. nothing grew, and yeah. there was no sunlight. Yeah, yeah, yes. yeah, yeah. You can tell more about. Well, the no.
2: It's just that it happened, and we have history. But we did come out of it in a year. I mean, what interests me about what you're saying is that, well, many things interest me. But it's it's like I remember someone saying to me about 20 years ago. Oh, all we. It was Jonathan Porritt who. Was a big environmentalist, and he said, all we need is for cities like New York or Miami to be affected by climate change, and then everyone will wake up and do something. Well, that's happened, and nobody's woken up, and nobody's done something. So going back to Brown's question about knowing the enemy, I mean, I do think, whether the word is enemy or not, you do need to feel a reason for all those two million ecology groups that Paul Orkin mentions, a reason for us to come together with a goal. And the goal at the moment is vague because it's about a general overthrow of a capitalist system, which is now punishing many more people than it rewards, and indeed has always done that, if you know that. So it's just what more has to happen, um, or what has to happen before all the people who are not happy find a common voice, which is strong
1: enough. Do you mind if I go to the toilet? (laughs) (laughs) Is that a real question? Excuse me, yeah, that's a real question. Okay. We don't mind. I will take the toilet later. Can we carry on? You just just carry on.
2: It's that way. <laughs> <laughs> so, that's kind of strange. But
0: No, I, I did it once uh, at an event as well. I actually didn't even ask. I just went to the toilet. Were you in
2: mid-sentence? <laughs> Excuse me? Were you in mid-sentence?
0: <laughs> not, not really. <laughs> Okay. But I think it's fair to go. If anyone needs to go to the toilet...
2: Yeah, do you use this moment. I mean, look, it says ladies yeah, and gentlemen, Just don't go to there. the
0: same toilet as <laughs> Brian. So, so, yes, to come back to, 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 uh, to Brian's question and to your question. If the situation is so complex, I think also the... And multi-layered. Like I mentioned, 1816, when because of a volcano, there was no sun for one year. And then it had as an effect very different processes, mm-hmm. like in the sense, no food. Uh, uh,
2: uh, and people were very, very
0: frightened. Yes. Because they did not and understand apocalyptic it. movements were rising yeah. because they thought it is a sign End the sign of the God and so yeah. on. Something what's happening today in one way, I would say. So that's possible as well. You know, it doesn't have to be climate change. It can just be a volcano. Like the Icelandic volcano which stopped uh, air airplanes. So if that's the situation that something can happen which we cannot yes, predict. Yes, but
2: we can't wait for a an no, no, no a, I'm not saying an that. Factor.
0: I'm not. I don't say we have to wait for that. What I'm saying is our answer has to be multi-layered already. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, to put it very concretely, the answer cannot just be waiting for a political party to enter government and then to push a progressive agenda. The answer cannot be, uh, you know, even if I like Fridays for Future or and I think it's a great movement or Extinction Rebellion, the answer is also not just horizontality and being on the streets. The answer is also not 2 million NGOs in the United States. The answer is also not uh, a musician uh, uh, or an artist speaking about progressive causes. I think we need to put all of this together and all out of this create an organization which would be able to respond to such a multi-layered complex problem which is existing. And I am hopeful because this is happening already. Uh, You have seen, for instance, here in Britain in which way uh, uh, Greta and Extinction Rebellion pushed yep. Caroline Lucas and Labour. Uh, uh, to, to adopt a Green New Deal. Mm-hmm. You can see what's happening in Europe with DiEM25's Green New Deal, what is happening with Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. Uh, uh, and it's not just, you know, this kind of uh, uh, what Hegel would call beautiful soul uh, 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 criticism of capitalism. It's, it's actually, uh, in th- there are many differences between many different Green New Deals. And I'm also very critical of some of the Green New Deals because they're actually not questioning capitalism itself. And we can also imagine a future in which Europe would again uh, 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 create a new kind of system on the shoulders of the global south. Because also solar panels, wind turbines and so on need materials which will be extracted from Congo and other countries which are already undergoing a civil war because all the mobile Mm -hmm. phones we use. Uh, So in that sense we have a lot of things to rethink and think about the Green New Deal but I can see that there is a consensus rising about the Green New Deal which is both uh, 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 not part of the parliament but it is on the streets and on the other hand, it is pushing existing political parties uh, 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 to push this through the parliaments. So I think we are approaching, never, never before, I think, in the last decades, there has been so much. He's back. Hey. So much talk about the Green New Deal.
1: Thank you. Sorry,
0: a, bit yeah. of a So we just solved the global issue, crisis in the
1: meantime. Yeah, no. we oh, can... Christ, are you going to tell me about it afterwards? <laughs> so, <laughs> so do you
2: think we reach a tipping point where suddenly the policies change?
0: Well, I think we have a lot to do still. Uh, I think the situation changed radically in the sense that, uh, yes, unlike a few years ago, uh, there is a consensus rising that this cannot go on, Uh, uh, and uh, uh, there is the idea of a Green New Deal which, as I said, when you were there, uh, uh, has to be anti-capitalist at the same time, because there is, to paraphrase the old slogan, there is no communism in one country, there is also no Green New Deal in one country, and especially not a Green New Deal in just developed countries, which we then again uh, uh, develop on the shoulders of the global south. Uh, But I see this is rising. What I see, I mean, to be more pessimistic, which is at the same time hopeful, uh, what I really like is a recent science fiction movie which I watched, Uh, a Chinese one called Wandering Earth. I don't want to make promotion for Netflix here, but it's on Netflix. Uh, And it's interesting because it goes from from the following scenario. The scenario is that the sun is turning into a red giant uh, which would basically swallow the earth. Uh, So the earth suddenly creates something what Immanuel Kant was dreaming of, uh, a a world government, uh, which is then uh, um, evacuating uh, most of the earth's the Earth population already was reduced to only 3 billion, so there was a huge uh, uh, catastrophe happening uh, because of it. And then they evacuated the population under the surface of the Earth, and they built 10,000, it sounds completely crazy, uh, 10,000 engines which were put on the, the back of the Earth to, 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 to bring Earth uh, to another sun, basically to bring Earth out of the orbit to bring it to another sun. What is hopeful in this scenario? Because it's complete shit on the surface of Earth. They're again using fossil fuels in order to, uh, to have fuel for the engines and so on. What is hopeful? That might sound as a paradox, but I think we need to adopt this kind of Chinese thinking, which think in the, in the different temporality. Uh, what is hopeful is that this goes on for 2,500 years. Now, if you ask me what is hopeful in that, that that humanity lives down uh, uh, underground for 2,000 years and they don't know when they will reach another sun, I think what is hopeful is precisely this. Uh, The moment of the partisan struggle in 44 and those years, it is a tiny moment. In, 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 in planets, uh, planets history. At the moment that we are sitting here tonight and you are there and Brian went to the toilet and I will go next is uh, also a very <laughs> tiny moment in history. But what I really like is and I'm not this fetishist of the Zapatista movement although, although I respect them a lot is the Zapatista, uh, uh, Zapatista understanding of temporality and they make this and it's interesting that the logo of Extinction Rebellion is is this basically, yes, yeah. the, 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 the hourglass, the sand glass. You know, when you turn it around uh, from one side, then the sand comes down and suddenly it becomes a mountain. But when you turn it around again, it is a very tiny, uh, just a tiny uh, 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 scratch of sand. And I think resistance movements are like that. Uh, uh, they can become a mountain in time if they are connected with other movements at the same time, at the same time they can vanish and some people call it a failure, I don't call it a failure, but they can rise again. And if we see time in that way, which is not this capitalist notion of time, which is, uh, Walter Benjamin criticized it beautifully, uh, 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 you know, with his Angelus Novus, uh, the uh, Cleese painting where he said that what capitalism understands under the name of progress is nothing else but an accumulation of catastrophe. What we have to do is to get out of this circle of, you know, GDP growth, progress, and so on, which is mainly about building things and using cement. No, we have to put uh, an end to this very concept of growth, you know. We have to have limits on how many things can be built, how many fossil fuels uh, uh, can be used, how many things we can consume, and so on. And only when we get out of this kind of temporality, which looks at temporality as, you know, going from point A to point Z, uh, we can get out of this mess today. And in that sense, it's hopeful to come back to the Chinese scenario, even if this struggle takes 2,000 years, even if as all scientific studies say, by 2050, we will not have sea fish anymore. Uh, we will not have coffee anymore. Uh, the air will be polluted already today. Uh, more people are dying because of air pollution, more than 8 million uh, than of smoking. Even if we live live a kind of Chinese dystopia, uh, uh, you know, under the surface of the earth, uh, well, there is hope. Because it's a tiny moment in history, but it, when you turn the hourglass... On the other side, it can become a mountain.
1: This brings me to my theory that I have the solution. I I mentioned this in the dressing room, but... I want
0: to hear the solution.
1: The solution is the climate crisis. Climate change is actually not the problem, it's the solution. I think it's the only thing that is overpowering enough to make people, first of all, work together and cooperate to realize that the petty struggles that we're going through like about whether to leave the fucking eu or not <laughs> really don't matter very much in the long term it's it's the first thing actually that's happened for a long time that's made people think of the future of a future that that is more than a few days away at least so now we're actually talking about 2050 that's that's quite an improvement you know 2 years ago we weren't even talking about last year <laughs> you know so But the other thing, I think, is that we are so well geared up to deal with climate change. For example, what happens when there's any kind of climate catastrophe? Who do we call? The military. You know, when Hurricane Katrina happens or any uh, flooding happens, we call out the military. We have this huge force which is desperate for something to do, so it has to keep inventing wars the rest of the time. But when there is something real to do, they're actually very good at it because they're very well financed.
0: Did you read, there is a wonderful book by Frederick Jameson, you know, the guy who said that it's possible to imagine everything, even the end of the world, except the end of capitalism, who wrote a book about the U.S. Army as a future utopia with the same point in the sense that we can use the army for for that
1: purposes. This is what I'm thinking. You see, one of of the other big problems we have beside climate crisis is... um, international conflict. And the best way to deal with that is to give armies something real to do, to give them a real enemy, and suddenly we have it in the form of climate change. You know, suddenly we need well-organized, highly technologically savvy people who have a history of hundreds of years of money being poured into them, of DARPA and ARPA and, you know, the British Defence Establishment, and all of the scientists, for, I think 40% of our scientists, are involved in defense. That's an incredible figure, isn't it? <laughs> so all of this intelligence is already going into this force, and we don't do anything with it except invent wars now and again. You know, Who should we, we have as the enemy this week? Is it China? No, we're trading with them. So North Korea, okay. We're, we're constantly creating the impression that there's the need for these big armies, because they, you know, they're a huge self-contained money structure, essentially. But it occurred to me that these most of these people really do want to do something useful. You know, the the few people I know in the military are actually committed and not cynical. They they want to do something useful in the world. Suppose you could say to them, you could do the most useful thing at all, of all: help with this, fight this enemy. So that this Yes, protect the rainforest, you know, instead of protecting um, the interests of arms manufacturers. Yeah. <laughs> so this is the beginning of the solution, but I won't go on too long about this. But I think we have to, what we have to realise that if we can solve this huge global problem, that will require forms of cooperation between us that will put us in a very good position to deal with any other problem. This is the biggest problem. Everything else is trivial compared to that, I think.
0: I completely agree. I would give you to to, to lead the the, the world government. (laughs) But, if I may be the advocatus there there is a small problem in it. Uh, And the problem is that it reminds me of a kind of chicken-in-the-egg problem. Uh, Like uh, Greta, the Swedish girl, Mm -hmm. is saying something similar to what you just said now. Uh, She said, uh, uh, like, having the prospect of European elections in front of us All the other problems except climate change are not real problems. Mm. And I agree, it's something what what you said now. But it's chicken and the egg in the sense that if we want to use, for instance, the army in order to to stop the big floods or the fires which were happening in California now, we are having big floods uh, in the Balkans again and so on, uh, uh, you need political will. Mm -hmm. Uh, You need governments who will then give, uh, 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 you know, an order to the army in order to go and to save people's lives, and so on. So in this sense, I would say, uh, yes, of course you're right, and Greta is right. The only real problem and biggest threat, besides, it's climate change, on the other side, it's nuclear war, I would say, as well. Uh, But in order to prevent it, you again need to fight the fascists. You again need to fight the right-wing populists. You again need to fight Bolsonaro, who is cutting the Amazon. You again need to fight Donald Trump. And then it brings us back again this very daily life and the things which no one likes to do is to participate in politics, in social organization and so on. Yeah. So again, I would say it's not an either-or. I think we have to do both. Yeah. Uh, but uh, there is a long way until we come to the to this idea that we would have a world government or whatever it is, mm-hmm. which would be able to use all this research. For instance, you are completely right. There would be no internet without the U.S. Army mm-hmm. and, and the public sector, which invested so much money. It's, so again, yes,
1: yeah. it's the public sector that paid yeah. for it all. As Mariana Mazzucato points out in her books, all she has that wonderful diagram which shows an iPhone and every major technology in it, which all is paid for by American taxpayers. All of it, 15 major tech, new technologies in that, which makes it particularly nasty when those companies then situate themselves in places where they don't have to pay any tax, yep. so th- so they don't give anything back to those taxpayers.
0: Anyway, you wanted to. And we're going to
2: bring up the lights
1: now. Um, can we have some lights? And
2: I know we've got roving mics.
0: And... So now we will see when someone is going to the toilet.
2: <laughs> don't all run. <laughs> It's so difficult to can, I okay, make a, can
1: I make a little request about questions? Yes. That they are questions rather than lectures. Okay. And that the,
2: can the they're questions a bit more. whose
1: answers might interest at least one other person in the audience.
0: <laughs> OK,
1: well, that, on that tall order, let's have the first question.
0: Hi, my name is Maider and I just wanted to ask you all a question. Uh, we've seen, as you said, several movements explode, like the climate movement and also the Me Too movement. I'm just wondering why we haven't seen movements around wealth inequality that much, or at least I haven't seen them, and I'm wondering why that is. Is it because it's not fashionable? I just, I don't know. We had
1: Occupy Wall Street. That's a very good question, and I have wondered the same thing, and I, I think that will change. I think people are suddenly the kind of glitter of that kind of billionaire wealth has started to fade a little bit and people are cynical now about oh, Elon Musk and Peter Thiel as you say and one of the reasons they're cynical is because they realise that all of those people are preparing to abandon civilization to go to New Zealand or Mars which is why they and, need all and those Montana, billions Montana isn't there, Who and is Montana, is who's bought yeah.
2: 2 million acres that we said yeah, that, we that from, article the other day, yeah the guy yeah.
1: from Reddit yeah, uh, yeah so they're you know, they're buying guns and weapons and fencing off areas of Utah and so on. So, that, so when people realise that... Just like when we realised that Rhys Mogg, after all his shit about investing in England, had just moved £200 million into Europe, into European investments. So I think people are starting to realise now that the, the
0: wealthy aren't necessarily particularly altruistic, to say the least. <laughs> I would say, I mean, you you already uh, said it, that one of these movements was Occupy Wall Street, of course. Uh, There are several reasons why Occupy Wall Street didn't succeed. One of them is precisely because it stayed on the level of horizontality, I would say. Uh, 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 Also others, but Occupy Wall Street really succeeded to change, uh, 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 you know, what we define as the enemy. You know, we speak about the 1% and 99%, not because of Thomas Piketty, who wrote a book about inequality, but because of Occupy Wall Street. Uh, There is another movement which exists today, uh, uh, which puts inequality directly in their focus, which is called uh, the Gilets jaunes in France, the Yellow West. You know, it's a movement which uh, uh, came as a result uh, because uh, uh, Emmanuel Macron... Uh, you know, that president uh, 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 which German philosophers such as Peter Sloterdijk and Jürgen Habermas uh, were seeing as the world spirit on the horseback, uh, uh, which is, excuse me? Yeah, of course, because the media, how does media function? The media, Chomsky wrote about it, manufacturing consent. The media functions precisely that someone... Pulls in or the capital in order to, 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 to promote their own personal interests. Uh, but Yellow West although I can be critical of them as well, it's not really a homogeneous movement, uh, uh, put inequality yes. as the first topic because they were the ones who were supposed to pay a carbon tax they were again the ones who were supposed to pay for the green transition. So this is one of the reasons why the green transition and green new deal cannot function uh, 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 just based on taxation I think. Uh, uh, that's why we are, for instance, at DM 25 Yanis Varoufakis and other economists developed this, are uh, proposing that it should function through issuing bonds, uh, through massive investment, which wouldn't come on the shoulders of the poor and the taxpayers. So, But yes, many other things have to be done so that even inequality comes uh, uh, to the first focus. And I think also the Green New Deal uh, has to... Uh, mention the big inequalities because it might be possible that Germany... You know what's happening, because I'm campaigning now in Germany. Uh, uh, what's happening in Germany is that they are exporting big numbers of diesel cars, uh, mainly to Austria, Italy, but also to the periphery country of the European Union, such as Serbia, Croatia, and so on. So you can... Uh, which are countries which also have a big problem of air pollution, which we then again have an even bigger problem of air pollution because of diesel cars. And, of course, I cannot blame the Croatians, the Serbs, and so on for buying diesel cars because it's cheaper. But you can see that you can imagine this kind of Chinese science fiction again uh, uh, where you will have developed countries which will be completely green, yeah. uh, uh, which will be completely automated, artificial intelligence, electric cars... Some and of them will travel is. to Mars, and everything else will look like Congo with civil wars and with air pollution and so on. So that's why I think inequality, yes, it's, it's, it's an issue which has to be on the top. Okay,
2: question over there. Hi, um, I was really interested, Shrek. I mean, you mentioned about um, uh, refugees in Viz, uh, how they very quickly established kind of theatre companies and, and what have you. And Brian, you, you did a great John Peel lecture about the role of art, mm. the arts. In, in, I guess, establishing our sense of humanity. Do you think the arts still have a role to play in establishing a common voice against fascism? Thanks for the question. Good First, Okay. Come on, Brian, your subject. Uh,
1: well, it's, it's a very long subject, <laughs> very long answers, but I shouldn't g- try to give too long an answer. But I think, I think arts do several different things. One of the things one of the effects is to bring people together to show them that they have common interests and there's a kind of empathy between them. So there are quite a lot of organizations realizing this like there's one called In Place of War which goes to conflict zones difficult places and starts projects which people from different sides as it were take part in and do things together. Another example of that is Augusto Boll's Forum Theatre thing where people act out social conflicts, and uh, the the people who are actually participants in those conflicts become the actors and play play themselves, as it were. And this has been found to be a very effective way of um, healing societies. So that's a very literal way of using the arts, but there are actually much less literal ways. For example, just sharing something together, having strong feelings about something together creates a a kind of empathy that people can then work from. Um, And, of course, the other thing is the the fact that engaging in the arts is an imaginative process. We we often forget that it's the audience who are doing the imagining. It's not just the artist. It's the audience as well. And to give people a, a place where they can be imaginative prepares them for life in quite different ways... It, it means that they're, not, they're imaginative in other places other than in the appreciation of art. The, the imagination is a faculty that needs to be... Pr- um, sorry, I'm talking to you over my shoulder. It's because I've got a stiff neck. Um, um, it's a faculty that needs rehearsal. It's not something that we all are born with equally or even at all. It needs, you need situations in which to practice being imaginative. And if you have that practice, then you can apply that to lots of different things. You can apply that to being a chef just as much as to being a painter or to being a mortician, if you like. It's not, it's not limited after that. So creativity is a language that people need to rehearse a lot. And I think participation in the arts is how we do that, one of the ways. Sorry. Sorry, it's a long answer. But.
0: You're an artist, I'm not. So. <laughs> <laughs> and... Let me put it like this one of the main reasons, besides all the things uh, uh, which Brian Eno did, why I love him, is uh, his uh, uh, efforts uh, in Sarajevo during the siege of Sarajevo, uh, which is another proof uh, in which way arts can concretely help people. Uh, because it wasn't just Susan Zontag doing Waiting for Godot, it was Brian Eno and Nigel Osborne. Uh, who were helping uh, children uh, uh, with music during the siege of Sarajevo. You know how that, okay, we can talk about the Green New Deal, these big ideas and so on, uh, but to do such things is so important, you know, to help a concrete individual uh, uh, who is, at, uh, who is uh, suffering the, the, the longest siege uh, since the Second World War as it happened in Sarajevo. Uh, so art can really help in that way, and then also people to whom you and Nigel helped and Nigel was coming later to Brioni also to help uh, children who had problem uh, with not hearing and so on. This is, this is huge. Uh, uh, but we could also go back to, to history, to the Russian futurists and so on. Uh, and if you go to the Yugoslav partisan movement, did you know, I mean, you didn't, I didn't know about it as well, but uh, a friend told me who is researching the partisan movement, uh, Gal Kirn, publishing a, a book very soon, that uh, during the liberation movement, uh, 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 from occupied uh, uh, Yugoslavia uh, there were 40,000 songs and poems composed by, 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 by the partisans 40,000 uh, uh, 40,000 it means that Uh, uh, ordinary people were writing songs, poems, and so on, which were later used. Uh, Even uh, recently, there is scholarship about photography recently, uh, during the partisan movement, where they showed there were so many photographers doing photos, and you know what was the remarkable thing? They were not taking credit or copyright on the photos. They were not giving signatures under the photos. It was important to just produce it, to, to have remembrance, and so on. So in this sense, I think there is no revolution with, uh, or social change without the arts. Uh, and there's also yeah. no solidarity without arts.
1: Yeah. Perhaps I can add one more thing. This, this is a phrase that I came up with a little while ago, which is um, um, play is how children learn. We all understand that. What we don't understand is art is how adults play. So, so I see it as a, as a part of our
0: continuous learning process. Can I, before you ask a question, ask you just a short question? Did you? I know that you returned to Sarajevo recently. Yeah. Did you maybe meet some of the people? Kids? Yeah. Yeah. How was that? Can well, you tell us about it? I,
1: I had a show in the um, Sarajevo Museum of History, which is, in particular, the museum of that conflict. Um, it's a very, very, very touching museum because it's so it's so recent. All of the objects are still around. You know, so there are. A broken coffee cup off somebody's table um, and there are reconstructions of people's houses and the objects that they had in the houses and the things that they used to keep warm and to cook on because um well i'm sure you know better than
0: anyone that people were living in not really i wasn't i i wasn't a victim in that way i wasn't in Sarajevo. so i was okay lucky. well there were people living a completely
1: subterranean life much like your chinese film um for two or three years and we were meeting children who had spent nearly all of their lives to that point underground. And they were quite terrified of of the outside. The outside for them was bright and full of bombs. So um, it was quite shocking to see how quickly you can reduce a population to a state of terror. And uh, we were in Mostar, which of course was heavily shelled. when I was in Mostar first, the Serbs had 780 mortars in the hills around, and the Mostarians had one mortar. <laughs> and they were in the valley at the bottom, you know what I mean? Anyway, I shouldn't get into that story too much. But, but the thing that was very important was that... Do you know what the people wanted more than... They, they got lots of food. There was lots of UN help. So nobody was starving. But... What they really wanted were two things they wanted batteries so that they could listen to their tapes because there was no electricity flowing around but they they had um, players you know so they wanted to be able to listen to things and the other thing they wanted was guitar strings and this this is how we first got involved because some some friends of ours said, um, "I'm going to Mostar and have you got any instruments or strings or anything that?" we could give to people there. And so quite a few musicians got together and collected things and sent them down. And this was incredibly welcome because suddenly they had something to play. They, they had something to do underground there.
2: Okay. Hi. Up there, yeah.
0: Um, if political and social the political
2: and social paradigm we're in is so affected by what artists are doing. Um, do you think that in order to move to a new political and social future, we need a new artistic framework other than the post-modernist framework that we're in at the moment?
0: Go on, Brian.
1: <laughs> He's the
0: guest. No, 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 but you are an expert in this. I'm, I'm no one compared to you in this field.
1: Um, I would have called myself a postmodernist modernist at a certain time, and I've become quite disenchanted in in the movement, actually. Um, As I've seen it popping up in advertising and in in a sort of yuppie-ish, soy latte-type world of things, I, I suddenly think, actually, I don't want anything at all to do with that. Um... The postmodernist paradigm, if, as you, um, as I think you're invoking it, is a kind of attempt to say um, all culture is here and present now and of roughly equal value and we can reassemble it in any way that we want to. And it produced some fabulous art and it's produced buckets fulls of shit as well. Um, and unfortunately, the buckets are coming faster than the fabulous at the moment. So I, I would say that movement has sort of died. And it's, it's died, actually, because what its critics uh, mainly criticized it for, I think, turned out to be true. Um, and that criticism was of its relativism, its assumption that everything was equally value depending on, valuable depending on how you looked at it. And every point of view was equally valuable. So everybody could have their own sort of identity position and their own point of view. And it was all fine. And, of course, we now see the outcome of that. If you start looking at, these, um, at the right-wing websites, they very well absorbed all of that. That's become their kind of uh, defense. Hey... I'm entitled to an opinion too. My point of view is just as valid as yours. Um, Whatever the truth of this, whatever the facts are, I've got my own facts, and they're just as valid as yours. So I don't like this relativization of science, for example, or the relativization of knowledge. I don't think that I want to live in a world where somebody can say, um, uh, you know, climate change isn't happening despite the fact that 9995 of all climate scientists think that it is, I personally am entitled to my opinion that it isn't. So that, that is the sort of world that postmodernism has left us with, I think. Now, a lot of my friends say that I have too simple a view. Like, I, I've argued with Evgeny Morozov about this, and he... His view is, of course, much more sophisticated than mine.
0: But he's also very critical, I would say, of postmodernism. no?
1: Yes, I, I think he's critical, but he's, he's more sophisticatedly critical than I am. He doesn't say things like buckets of shit. <laughs> <laughs> Do
0: you have anything to add? I have, but there are...
2: Okay, let's take another question. Yep. Okay, over there.
0: Um, I'm just. I just have a question about um, what sort of lessons do you think that the extinction rebellion movement can learn from the failures of the occupy Wall Street movement? Um, I guess maybe we have an answer in the proposal of a policy like the Green New Deal. But how do we uh, actually enact change instead of just changing the conversation?
2: Mm-hmm.
0: That one's for you. Yeah. Well, I would rather answer that. I'm sorry. Uh, Well, I think we already mentioned it. I think it's uh, uh, to get rid of the fetishism of uh, horizontality. And when I say that, uh, 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 I had this experience, although I I respect a lot Occupy Wall Street and uh, in the way they change. Don't don't underestimate uh, uh, words. Don't underestimate language. So even if it might look like a failure Occupy Wall Street, it changed changed and imposed a certain language, which I think is important. Uh, uh, But uh, what I experienced there when I was two weeks at Zuccotti Park in 2011 is that uh, in which way horizontality can really be counterproductive. So unlike Extinction Rebellion, Occupy Wall Street had a big problem, which is that at Zuccotti Park, uh, they uh, they couldn't have mics. Uh, uh, You know, they didn't have sound equipment, so if you remember they had a mic check uh, 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 and each time they would say something then the full audience would repeat something. Uh, Julian Assange who has to be remembered because he's sitting uh, in solitary confinement at the British Guantanamo uh, when, uh, in Belmarsh Prison, uh, uh, made a wonderful g- gesture which shows that he had a wonderful sense of humor besides a sense for justice. At Occupy Occupy London uh, uh, when he was still free uh, just before he took political asylum at uh, uh, Ecuadorian Embassy. He gave a speech and and this is, I think, it's it's genius. It shows what were the mistakes of Occupy London or Wall Street. Uh, He used the phrase for Monty Python, Life of Brian, and said on the mic, we are all individuals. (laughs) And you know what happened. I would love this to happen here but I don't know if you're ready to do that. We are all individuals. Yay! Yeah, you see, some are not, but uh, <laughs> but he did that, and everyone repeated. And basically, by that subtile subversion, he showed what was also the problem of Occupy Wall Street. Uh, uh, the, the, the deeper problem, to give a more theoretical point, was not so much the mic check and that everyone repeated, but it was the fetishism of horizontality in the sense I witnessed some general assemblies. We called that back during the student occupations in Zagreb. Uh, uh, we called it uh, plenums. Uh, the problem was that the General Assembly would uh, take place for hours and hours, and everyone was supposed to decide on everything. So when Sokoti Park was occupied by the police, uh, 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 they were in danger of being kicked out, which they were in the end. Uh, they were deciding whether to have five uh, uh, garbage cans or six, because someone was giving a thesis. I'm now... A bit inventing, but it was similar, like whether we would put green apples here and red apples here and so on. Uh, I don't think that the social revolution, and that might be a lesson for Extinction Rebellion, uh, can really be productive if everyone decides on everything. And not everyone has to decide on everything. I'm not advocating that again. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Sorry, I got a bit of a bladder problem tonight. But um, you will be back. I'll be back. Yeah. yeah. <laughs>
2: okay, we'll stay Could we have a, Let's have another question
0: Yeah, Let, let me just finish with the yeah. conclusion So this is one, to learn from Occupy Wall Street is that Horizontality is not enough uh, It's not enough to protest, it's also not enough To have uh, beautiful uh, 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 Protest, I think The next phase of Extinction Rebellion really has To be what they are already doing But uh, to work uh, On a program To work on a content To, content, to, to, to get allies to work with different other movements, and so on. And not to perceive themselves as the only movement which is advocate, advocating this, which is very often a failure of radical movements, to think that they are, the, you know, the, the problem of vanguardism, that they are the only ones who are pushing this forward. There are many other movements, and actually the Green New Deal existed thousands of years before at indigenous communities. They just didn't have the technology, but they lived better lives than us. I'm not idolizing them, but we should also give a respect uh, to all those other peoples on which shoulders we are building new movements today. Yeah, thank you.
2: Okay. Over. All right, up there. Um, hello. Um, dobro to you. Um, you've mentioned briefly on concepts, perhaps socially constructed narratives of n- what an enemy is. And you also mentioned briefly that um, the cap- you have to fight, use capitalism to fight capitalism. I guess my confusion right now is we live in a society around the world um, where people don't even look at each other. Neighbours don't know each other. So therefore, how do you propose using capitalism to fight capitalism? Um, okay, yeah, thank you. Thanks. Thank you.
0: Well, if I may, 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 may use one of my favorite poets, uh, Fernando Pessoa. Uh, Fernando Pessoa uh, had a beautiful, sophistical uh, uh, play, which is very short, 20, 30 pages, called The Anarchist Banker. Uh, the Anarchist Banker. Uh, uh, and basically, one of the conversations at the beginning of this short, sophistical play uh, uh, goes like this. Uh, there, there is an old banker with a cigar, and the young banker uh, 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 who's asking the old banker the question, but how can you claim that you are still an anarchist? And uh, uh, the old banker says, you know, when I was young, uh, I was uh, uh, like all the other anarchists, you know, throwing Molotov cocktails, having seminars, doing, you know, what Oscar Wilde said, that socialism will never succeed because the meetings are too long, Uh, um, (laughs) which is not the case today. Uh, although we need a toilet on the stage <laughs> next time. Like that, that, technology should do that, that we can peace immediately on the. Uh, uh, I'm sorry for my Balkan humor. That's what they did uh, about
2: four or five hundred years ago. Yeah, maybe we yeah, should then go just back. go back to it.
0: <laughs> no. Uh, but yeah, so, and then the young banker asks him, but yes, but isn't that contradictory? How can you claim that you are still an anarchist? And he says, I realized, once I was done with all these Oscar Wilde meetings, uh, violent resistance, if you want, and so on, uh, that uh, uh, if there is one single uh, instance which has power over our lives, it is money. And the only way, I know this answer will not satisfy you because it is a bit sophistical but then I will give an additional answer. The only way to get rid of this power is to have enough money. Uh, and that's why I'm still an anarchist banker. That's what he said. Uh, uh, Of course, I'm not advocating that we should all have more money and that this is the solution. But I think among the left, usually among the left, uh, 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 there is also this illusion that you can do social change without money, uh, that uh, you should uh, uh, despise all those uh, who have successful businesses or money or so on. Well, I think it has to be the opposite, you know. opposite in the sense that we need infrastructure. You know, I will always remember an answer which Oliver Stone gave at a festival which I was running in Croatia, which which was called, it's still called, but I'm not running it anymore, the Subversive Festival. And uh, there was a big press conference. Oliver Stone was sitting here, a lot of journalists in front of him, and some of the subversive journalists uh, asked him a question, but how can you... Uh, 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 claim that you are a subversive but a Peugeot car because the subversive festival which I was running uh, had Peugeot as one of its sponsors Uh, so if you are a radical left now you can throw potatoes at me Uh, uh, Oliver Stone said you know what I come from Hollywood we need cars, we need infrastructure, and we need to use this in order to make good movies. And Oliver Stone is not only making good movies, you know, I was on, on, on his set of Edward Snowden, which was filmed in Munich, in München. You know why it was filmed in München? Because no one wanted to give him money in the United States because he was doing a movie about Edward Snowden. So, yes, you can say, Edward, you can say Oliver Stone is a rich person who has a lot of money, comes from Hollywood, he doesn't know how... The indigenous communities uh, uh, or other people live and he's living this kind of luxurious life like the anarchist banker from Pessoa but he's using the money to make very subversive movies. I think the fact that he did Edward Snowden movie is a big thing for for all whistleblowers and for all those. You know recently today I was sitting at a cafe and I saw a woman who had uh, 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 a sticker on the camera uh, of her computer. This is a direct consequence of Oliver Stone's movie, I would say, and of of, of, of what Edward Snowden was doing. So don't get me wrong, I'm not advocating we need to earn a lot of money and then we will make a change. Uh, That's what Elon Musk is advocating and Jeff Bezos. I'm just saying that if we really want to make a big social change yes, we should be smart in the way Tito and Winston Churchill were smart in '44, and they make some tactical alliances, and they were aware that they needed infrastructure in order to defeat the Nazis. Uh, uh, Brian, i stop here. Okay,
2: Brian, on that note, because that has to be the last question, because we're out of time, and really the question was picking up on Schrecker's thing of using capitalism to fight capitalism.
1: In a nutshell... <laughs> what kind of nut? <laughs> Walnut. <laughs> Walnut. Um, Brazil. Well, I I don't really see that we have a choice actually. Yeah. Um, I think just as I say uh, you know we should co-opt the military it's it's not because I'm particularly fond of the military it's because I think they would be much better in every respect if they had something real to do and they would be useful citizens if they if their mission was was redirected. So I, I mean, I think a lot of this comes from the realisation that we've been thinking for many, many years of society in a very limited way. We've we've not been thinking of the outside of society, which is the environment, or of the inside of society, which is the home, and the caring that goes on in the home. And this is what um, the economist Kate Raworth is talking about. She has this wonderful book called Donut Economics, mm-hmm. which says, okay, let's think of economics as a whole, a holistic issue. Um, what do we need to include if we do that? And we have to include the two things that were considered externalities. Um, the caring was considered an externality, partly because women did it, and partly because no money changed hands. So therefore it doesn't figure in GDP, so it's it's not an economic issue. But the environment was talked about in the same way. You know, if you could go and dig up the rainforest, who cares? You got the money for it, because the environment didn't have a voice. This is why, by the way, I joined, I joined an NGO called Client Earth, which is giving the environment a voice. So if anyone would like to contribute to Client Earth, they can hand the money directly to me, and I can assure you it will <laughs> find its way into it's a my wonderful other organization. pocket. organisation. <laughs>
0: OK, that's all I have to say. OK.
2: On that, have you got one last thing you want to say?
0: Last thing? Or we don't have questions anymore? Well, no.
2: I think uh, we have to stop. I think, I'm really sorry. I think we have to stop. You want one more question? Yeah, let's yeah. have one All right, one, one, more. one more question. Where is the... I'm sure there's hundreds. I just can't see. Who's got them? Okay, up there. Jack. Okay.
1: Thank you. Hi. You mentioned Julian Assange earlier and I just wondered if that played to what Brian talked about earlier, which is that it's very easy to divide these movements very quickly when you start getting into individuals and partic- uh, particular stances.
0: Yeah, th- thanks for the question. Uh, yes, what What you can see, unfortunately, with the case of Julian Assange is what, hap- what happens if a single individual and an organization, which is called WikiLeaks, uh, has an enemy uh, which is uh, the most powerful secret organizations uh, like CIA, NSA, and also British secret organizations and the most powerful world governments. Uh, You can think whatever you want about Julian Assange, agree with him or not agree with him when it comes to Brexit or something, Uh, but what is happening today, the very fact that he's, he's 23 hours in a cell uh, uh, without an ability to have social visits uh, even with difficulties to have phone calls I I'm I'm, didn't visit him at prison yet but I was last week in Berlin with Pamela Anderson who told me uh, her first hand experience uh, the situation is very bad uh, uh, he was never charged you have seen that the Swedish case so called Swedish case is reopened uh, it, he was never charged it is a preliminary investigation uh, he was always ready Uh, to go to Sweden and to talk to those women who accused him. Uh, uh, He even gave a statement in 2010 at the police. Immediately he went to the police. Later he escaped to Britain, not because he was escaping the women, but because he was sure that what is happening now would happen to him. And what is happening to him now is that he is tried to be extradited to the United States, uh, where he even faces that penalty. Uh, the very fact that he is at the Belmarsh Prison, uh, which itself is a victim of austerity uh, with dire conditions, that's the reason why most of the prisoners uh, are so many hours in something which might be described as solitary confinement, uh, 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 is scandalous for Western democracies. Someone who was never charged, someone who revealed secrets about... Crimes in Afghanistan, in Iraq, which were made in our names, which were made in the name of democracy, uh, is in a prison uh, with terrorists, with mass murderers, 23 hours in a cell. So whatever you think about him, just think about that. Whether we live in a fair and just society, if someone who didn't kill anyone Uh, who didn't commit a war crime, uh, is sitting in a cell in the same way Chelsea Manning was sitting in a cell, and she will again sit in a cell in a few days. So what you can see is that besides manufacturing consent, besides a character assassination, which is being directed against anyone who is having a critical and important voice against the system, uh, like Daniel Ellsberg, for instance. Do you know that Daniel Ellsberg, you know, Pentagon Papers, was tried also to be framed as someone who had group sex and so on. They even took the files of his psychiatrist in order to uh, uh, frame him as, you know, this kind of guy who's having sex with many people and so on, in the same way they are doing a character assassination of Julian Assange. So, the lesson of this is, of course, that everything what we spoke about today is not a joke. But, to be hopeful for the end, I don't think they have enough prisons to put us all there. And, uh, uh, And I think it's our responsibility, it's our individual responsibility, it is our collective responsibility that when people like Chelsea Manning, Julian Assange, are in prison, when people like Edward Snowden cannot return to the US, because of what? They cannot return because they revealed war crimes. When this is happening, I think even if their situation is terrible, you cannot even imagine it, I cannot even imagine what Chelsea Manning went through, or what Julian Assange is going through now, uh, we have the individual and collective responsibility to become their voice. And when I say to become their voice, go there, read the transcripts of the allegations, watch collateral murder, the video of Chelsea Manning sent to WikiLeaks, read about the war crimes, and make your own mind whether those people are the war criminals, or Donald Trump, Hillary Clinton, uh, 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 Tony Blair and all the others are the true war criminals who should end up in such a prison I can't add
1: anything to that <laughs> um, I can see you've been campaigning for the last two weeks <laughs> it shows <laughs> No, that, that was very powerful I, I can add one thing to that and this is about the asymmetry of the situation. Um, a few weeks ago, I was on one of the many Brexit demonstrations and we had got ahead of the main march and we were sort of milling around in Trafalgar Square. Um, and there were probably two or 3,000 other people there also waiting for the main march to catch up. So we we're all standing there, all friendly-looking liberals, um, campaigning to stay in the EU. And one man in a suit, maybe about 50 or 60, walked up Whitehall, and he started screaming at us. You fucking cunts! The fucking referendum has fucking decided! You are the fucking don't understand democracy! And he, he was shouting and screaming. He was on his own. I thought, that's pretty brave. But then I realized, no, actually, he's a realist. He knows we're all pussy liberals. And we're not going to beat him up. We'd sooner bite our own arms off than beat him up. But not one of us, I'm sure, would have walked into a pro-Brexit yeah. demo and said the same thing. So it's, it's a very difficult situation that there's
0: a real asymmetry. It, if I may address something. Yes, yes, I agree with you, but precisely the example of Edward Snowden, for instance, uh, shows that you know mo- around 2 million people uh, work, uh, who were employed by NSA and the Secret Service had the same clearance as Edward Snowden. Now you can be, as you said, you can, uh, and as I could be, I could be depressive about it and say what about the 1.99999 others, but it shows why didn't they do the same thing as Edward Snowden? But again it shows that one Edward Snowden did it, yep. and he succeeded to change whether you agree with it or not, a lot of things, even in the sense that ordinary so-called common people now in a cafe in London have a sticker on the camera on the computer. Which means, you know, in fact the sticker is not about the sticker, it's about the awareness that they are aware about a certain topic which a single individual did. Yes, it's, 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 it's very depressive how big the asymmetry is. You can see it in Julian Assange's case now. Uh, but uh, I think precisely those people show that all of us have to become much more courageous, much more radical, and risk much more than we are doing in our usual conformist lives.
2: On that note, thank you both very, very much.